grateful to have VBS the last couple of weeks, and we had our children uh, donate over $10,000 to this ministry called Cure, which is to provide uh, for children who have medical needs in Zambia. Uh, so let's, let's uh, give a round of applause for our children, over $10,000. And since then, uh, 317 Chapel Streeters have donated over $220,000 to this ministry to provide for these kids in Zambia who have medical needs. So, Your generosity is making a big difference in this world. Back in 2016, I heard a talk by a fundamentalist speaker on the topic of sin. And this speaker was not pulling any punches. He said, if you are consistently giving into a certain sin in this season of your life, you need to stop it. (laughs) And by the way, pause of the story. I think in that moment I had this thought. I was thinking something like, oh, stop it. I've never thought of that. (laughs) How helpful. Uh, So he said, if you're consistently giving into a certain sin in this season of your life, you need to stop it. He said, if you are struggling with lust and pornography, just stop it. He said, if you are being held back by fear and anxiety, stop it. He said, if, if you are, are uh, struggling with bitterness and unforgiveness, stop it. And then at the end of his talk, he literally had everyone say it together. This was the worst part. <laughs> he said, okay, so what do we do when we are struggling with a certain sin? Just stop it. And I cringed when I heard this, not because there is no truth whatsoever to this sentiment, but because the Bible is just not that simplistic. When we are weak and we feel like we are drowning in the crashing waves of our own sinfulness and brokenness and suffering, we do not have a God who says to us merely, my child, just stop it. The consistent testimony of Scripture is not of Jesus standing on the safe shorelines while we are drowning in sinfulness and suffering and him calling out to us and saying, hey, it looks pretty dangerous in there. You should probably pull yourself out of there. The consistent testimony of Scripture is of Jesus entering into the current of our sinfulness and our suffering and our brokenness and him reaching out his hand and taking us by the hand and saying, let me be a refuge for you. Jesus wants to encourage us with his presence. He wants to nourish us with his promises. He wants to strengthen us and build us up with his people. He wants to protect us and direct us with his word. And one of the primary ways that the word of God directs us and protects us is by exposing and correcting the lies of sin and temptation. And that's exactly what we're going to see in our passage for today. In Proverbs 7, Proverbs 7 exposes and corrects four lies of sin and temptation. And each of these lies, Satan is going to want to use these lies to tempt you to despair or to tempt you to sin or to tempt you to not trust God. So if you, uh, if you feel like in this season of your life, this is a season of temptation for you, you feel like Satan is, is using this season to tempt you to despair or to tempt you to not trust God or to tempt you to sin, Jesus wants to be a refuge for you. 
He wants to use his word, even this morning, to encourage you, to nourish you, to remind you of his presence and his promises and his love. So let's, let's pray now, and then we will dive into our text for today. Lord, I pray that you would do just that. Through your word, by your Holy Spirit who is here with us today, I pray that you would use your word this morning to encourage us, to protect us, to direct us, to remind us of your presence and your love. Lord, I pray that you would even use your word this morning to reshape our desires. Lord, to light a flame of worship in our hearts for you, to recommit ourselves to walk in obedience to you. And Lord, give us a fresh glimpse into your beauty in ways that would lead us to worship and praise. We, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Proverbs 7, it exposes and corrects four lies of temptation, and it shows us how we can walk on the path to life and freedom. Now, before we dive into these four lies, I need to make one preliminary comment on the context of Proverbs 7. Some of you may be familiar with this chapter, Proverbs 7. How many of you have seen the movie The Princess Bride? Okay, that's amazing, most of us. Um, so if you, know, if you know the structure of the movie of The Princess Bride, then you'll know the structure of Proverbs 7. So if you remember The Princess Bride, it begins with this grandfather talking to his grandson before his grandson goes to bed, and they're just having a conversation, and then the grandfather, he tells him this long story about princes and princesses and castles and knights, and that story that the grandfather tells, that becomes the narrative of the entire movie. Oh, and by the way, throughout the story, if you remember the grandfather, he kind of interweaves his commentary throughout the story. That's exactly what we're going to see in Proverbs 7. So in Proverbs 7, you have Solomon, who's this older man, and he's talking to his son or perhaps his grandson, and they're just having a conversation about temptation. And then Solomon, he, he goes and he tells his, his son this story, and he interjects his commentary throughout. Now, the story, this is important to catch, the story that Solomon tells his son, or perhaps his grandson, is a story about a man falling into temptation to sexual sin. But what's important to notice up front is that this story that we're going to read, it serves as a case study or an archetype or an anatomy of temptation in general. So the lies that we see in this story are lies that are present in any temptation, including the temptations that you and I are wrestling with in our own lives today. So as we read and as we see this story, the point is to see ourselves in this narrative, even if the temptations that you are currently struggling with are not sexual in nature. So I would encourage you to identify up front, even right now, identify one area of your life that you feel particularly vulnerable to temptation in this season of your life. So that could be bitterness or unforgiveness or envy or greed or selfishness or lust or pride or fear of man or lack of trust in God. Whatever it is for you, identify that up front. And then as we read this story, see if you can recognize any of these lies from your own life and ask the Holy Spirit to lead you in the truth, and he will do that. So with, with that being said, let's, uh, let's dive into Proverbs 7. I'm going to read the entire chapter now, and I'll make a few comments along the way, and then we will consider these four lies. Sound good? Okay. Proverbs 7, I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. I would encourage you to follow along in your Bibles if you have one. It's also going to be up on the screen. Proverbs 7. Solomon, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says this. 
My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Beautiful opening to this chapter. What will lead to true life? Treasuring God and his commandments. Let's keep reading. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. So notice eyes, hands, hearts here. The admonition is to let God's word guide and guard your eyes, your hands, your heart. Verse 4. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Okay, here we are introduced to two different women. We, we're introduced to Lady Wisdom in verse 4 and Lady Folly in verse 5. Now, the rest of this chapter that we're about to read, it, it tells us this story of Lady Folly. That's Proverbs 7. Proverbs 8, the next chapter, which we won't read today, it tells us about Lady Wisdom. Now, as we read about Lady Folly in this chapter today, don't get distracted by the fact that she's a woman. This is important to Notes. This chapter is not saying that women are predators and that men are victims of sexual sin. That would be a terrible misinterpretation of this chapter, and it would miss the point entirely. These two women in chapter 7 and chapter 8, they are simply personifications of foolishness and wisdom in general, and they challenge us, they challenge me, they challenge you as readers to ask ourselves the question, which voice will I listen to in my life? Which woman will I follow? Will I listen to Lady Folly and follow her? Or will I listen to Lady Wisdom and follow her? Verse 6. And Solomon, uh, here he begins telling his story. He says, For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner. So that's the corner of Lady Folly or the adulterous woman taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. Good vibes here or bad vibes? <laughs> bad vibes. Ominous vibes. This man is at the wrong place at the wrong time. As Pastor Jeff put it in our preaching team meeting this last week, he said, this man is not necessarily looking for temptation, but he's not actively not looking for temptation either. One other quick note on that phrase, at the time of night and darkness, you say, oh, is that just a random kind of throwaway line? No, no, uh, sin thrives in the dark. Not only physical darkness, but the darkness of isolation. Satan wants you to keep your sin private. He doesn't want you to bring it to the light because that's where healing is found. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed Healing is found in the light, it's found in confession, it's found in community with the body of Christ. Okay, verse 10. And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward, her feet do not stay at home, now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. Okay, that phrase, lies in wait, it reminds us of a few different passages in the Bible, it reminds us of Genesis 4-7. Remember when, when God was warning Cain and he said to Cain, he said, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. In other words, don't, don't be ruled by your desires, rule over your desires. This phrase lies in wait. It also reminds us of 1 Peter 5.8, which says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. 
This passage, uh, this, this phrase, lies in wait, it also reminds us of the serpent in the garden who was lying in wait to seduce and trap Adam and Eve. All right, let's keep reading in verse 13. The woman seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. So here the temptress finishes planting her litany of lies, and we'll come back to these lies in a moment, but the question is this, what will this man do? Will he listen to the voice of Lady Folly and follow her, or will he remember the voice of Lady Wisdom and follow her? Let's see what this man chooses to do in verses 21 through 22. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag or a deer is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. So this is the end of the narrative. And now Solomon, what is he going to do? He's going to give some commentary or some instruction to his son. He's going to tell his son the moral of the story. Look now at verse 24. And now, O sons, anyone catch that change from son to sons? What's, What's happening here? Well, it seems almost as if Solomon is no longer only addressing his son, but now he turns to anyone who will listen. He turns to all of his readers and he says, I have a word for you. So hear this. Notice what he says. Listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart, O reader, let not your heart, you who are here today, let not your heart turn aside to her ways and do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol or the grave going down to the chambers of death. If you're looking for a nice bedtime story for your children tonight, Proverbs 7 is a good option. (laughs) This chapter exposes at least four lies of temptation. Perhaps you noticed some of these lies as we read, uh, and they're up on the screen. Now, four lies of temptation from Proverbs 7. Lie number one, there's no danger in dabbling. Lie number two, God's grace permits this sin. Lie number three, this sin, it'll, it'll make you happy. Don't you want to be happy? The sin will make you happy. Lie number four, you will not surely die. You won't even be found out. Let's consider these one at a time, starting with lie number one, there's no danger in dabbling. Notice again, verses seven through nine, Solomon says, and I have seen among the simple, I perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense. Why was he lacking sense? because he was passing along the street near her corner. What are you doing? Don't go there. You know you are vulnerable in that particular area. What are you doing there? Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. The first thing to notice about this passage is what is not there. 
Notice that there is not this big, ugly ogre that jumps out and says to this man, hey, go, go commit adultery. Go ruin your life. Go deep into her house. That would be far too obvious, right? But sin is always much more subtle. It says, it says you don't need to go in. No, just, ah, just go near, you know? Just see, see, see what happens, you know? There's nothing dangerous about dabbling. This is what temptation always does. One of the distinguishing marks of temptation is that it always eases us into sin. It always sets the bar just low enough for us to be able to rationalize it and justify it in our own minds. Temptation says, you don't need to yell at your spouse. <laughs> I'm not crazy. I'm just, but may, maybe entertain a little, just, you know, a little bit of bitterness in your heart. A little cold shoulder never hurt anyone. You don't need to steal your friend's possessions. That would be rude. <laughs> but may, maybe just dwell, dwell on envy for a little bit. You don't need to disown your sister, but you know, maybe just gossip about some of the ways that she's hurt you. She won't even know. You don't need to commit adultery. <laughs> maybe just you know, follow that hashtag and see where it goes. Maybe just entertain a lustful thought or two. You don't need to create a statue of yourself and then worship it. That would be barbaric. <laughs> but, uh, may, you know, maybe just uh, obsess over your social media profile a little bit. Hey, I'm just here to help. <laughs> Satan is perfectly content playing the long game. He's perfectly fine with you or me taking one small step at a time towards sin, one small decision at a time over the course of days, weeks, or months until disaster happens all at once. Notice again verse 22. This is so interesting. Fast forwarding to the end of the story for a moment. It says, all at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Sin usually appears to happen all at once, but in reality, there's always a series of actions and choices that lead up to that moment. You never fall off a cliff without first getting near to it. Dabbling is the entryway to disaster, and Satan knows it. Alistair Begg says that disaster happens at the intersection of desire and opportunity. He says if, if you have a desire to sin, but you don't have an opportunity to sin, or if you have an opportunity to sin, but you don't have a desire to sin, he says you might be able to make it out alive. But he says when these two things come together, when a desire to sin meets an opportunity to sin, he says disaster is imminent. This means one of the primary ways we can combat temptation is by limiting our opportunities to sin in the first place. One of the primary ways we can combat temptation is to refuse to dabble with sin, to refuse to put ourselves in situations where we know we are vulnerable. So you say, wow, okay, that's great. I didn't realize you were a legalist, Blake. Huh, who would have guessed? Are you saying I should lock myself up in a padded room for the rest of my life so that I never have an opportunity to sin ever again? Yeah. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> no. Uh, but let me, let me challenge that notion of legalism for a moment, okay? Because it's easy for us to use a fear of legalism as an excuse to not set up boundaries, healthy boundaries, to keep us from sinning. Let me ask you this. Is it legalism to know where you are weak and vulnerable and to stay away whenever it's within your power from the situations that are likely to harm you? Is that legalism? I heard one pastor put it best. He said, imagine 
that every time you go to a 7-Eleven, you steal a Snickers bar, okay? So probably an issue that many of us struggle with. I'm seeing some of you shifting in your seats a little bit. You're like, he caught me. Uh, no. He says, imagine every time you go to a 7-Eleven, you steal a Snickers bar. And you tell yourself, I'm not going to do that again. You go to 7-Eleven, you steal a Snickers bar again. You're thinking about going to 7-Eleven, you say, it won't happen this time. You go, you steal a Snickers bar. And so finally, you get to this point where you say, you know what? I can't do this anymore. I am just not going to go to 7-Eleven at all anymore. Like, I'm just going to take out that opportunity to sin entirely. He says, is that legalism? He said, no. Legalism would be if you said no one can go to 7-Eleven because that would be sin for them. But he, he says, you choosing to not put yourself in a situation that you know is likely to harm you is not legalism. The Bible calls that wisdom. And that is the message of Proverbs 7, verses 6 through 12. This passage does not say that he sinned by going near her house, but it does say that he lacked sense. Dabbling with sin is at best unwise. And often it's sin. So that's lie number one. There's no danger in dabbling. Uh, let's look at lie number two now. And that is God's grace permits this sin. God's grace permits this. Look back at verses 13 through 15. It says, The woman seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. Alistair Begg says, uh, he notes that that phrase in verse 14, it has to do with religious purity. She's basically saying this, hey, we're covered. I've already paid my vows. We've already checked all of the religious boxes. You know, we're good to go. We have liberty here to sin. We're covered. God's grace will cover it anyway. Here's what to notice here. Satan tells us countless lies. Like if we stopped this service for a moment and we sat in like a kumbaya circle and, and we went around and I just said, hey, what are some of the lies that Satan tells us? I think we could probably come up with like a hundred in a matter of a few moments. But all of these lies, they fall into one of two major categories. The lie of temptation and the lie of accusation. Temptation is when Satan downplays sin. Accusation is when Satan downplays God's grace. And what's amazing about these two lies is that they are perfectly contradictory to one another, and yet somehow we believe them both within a matter of seconds. Here's how it works. In temptation, Satan says, do it. It's not a big deal. This will make you happy. God will forgive you anyway. Then we sin. Then immediately, Satan reverses his course. If you kind of imagine this illustration, we glance over the shoulder from which the tempter once promised, whispered promises of happiness and God's awaiting grace, but now he's gone. Suddenly, we hear hissing from the opposite shoulder, words of cursing and shame. The tempter has now become the accuser. Now he sells us the exact opposite message as he did seconds ago. He says, how could you have done that? That is a huge deal. Why in the world would you think that would make you happy? God will never forgive you. Then somehow, just moments after believing one of Satan's lies, we are already biting into his next hook. There are only two plays in Satan's playbook, temptation and accusation. He just keeps them on loop. And this is part of the, uh, the lie that we see in verse 13. The temptress basically says, hey, we can do this. God will forgive us anyway. And while it is true that God does forgive every sin of those who are trusting in Christ and his sacrifice, thank you, Lord, God, he, he still doesn't want us to sin because he knows that it will harm us. 
When, when you think about the way that God views your sin, what do you picture? Some people, when they think about God, they think of, they think of three things. When they think about God and sin, they think of God sitting up in heaven far removed from us, God giving us arbitrary rules to follow, and then God, after we sin, is the guy who says, ah, gotcha. And that picture of God could not be further from the truth from the testimony of Scripture. The God revealed in Scripture is a God who's not sitting up in heaven distant from us, but walking alongside us in this life, even living in us by his Holy Spirit. The God of Scripture is not giving us arbitrary rules to follow, but rather, if you picture this, he's like a loving father who walks through this life with us, and he points to different dangers and says, be careful, that will harm you. Be careful, that will kill you. And you know what? I'm going to call those things that will harm you and kill you. I'm going to call those things sin. Avoid those. The God of Scripture is not saying, ha, gotcha, after you sin. But rather, he says, if you sin, grace awaits you. But I still don't want you to sin because it will harm you and it will hinder your ability to enjoy sweet fellowship with me. Here's the point. If grace permitted the things in life that harm us, Grace would not be grace, and it would not be love. So that's line number two. God's grace permits this sin. Let's consider now line number three, and that is this one that, of course, none of us have ever fallen into this trap before, right? Uh, this sin will make you happy. Man, this one can be tempting. Notice verse 18. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. So here the temptress, she tugs at this man's desires. She says, this will be delightful. This will make you happy. And who doesn't want happiness, right? This can be a powerful lie because while we are still living in the flesh, our desires have not yet been perfectly purified. While we as Christians, we want to follow Jesus, often we look inside ourselves and we notice we still want to sin too. A powerful illustration of this dichotomy comes from C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. Have any of you happened to read The Great Divorce before? Okay, good. Not as many as Princess Bride, but The Great Divorce is a wonderful book. Highly encourage you to read it. Uh, um, in this book, and you see a picture on the screen there, in this book, Lewis describes a man who carried the lizard of lust on his shoulder. This lizard tormented the man day and night, and the man could never seem to escape its tyranny. So one day, God sent the Holy Spirit to rescue this man from his tormentor. In order to free the man, the spirit would have to kill the lizard. The man, into, uh, having become quite attached to the lizard, was hesitant at the thought of this operation, intuiting that the lizard's death would re require a kind of death to himself. So here's, here we go. Here's the excerpt from the interaction, as I read this excerpt, ask yourself, can I relate to the man in this story? Okay, here we go. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit, an angel as I now understood? I, of course I would, said the man. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, uh, look out, you're, you're burning me. K keep away, said the man, retreating. Don't you want him killed? Well, you didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything as drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. 
shall I kill it? Well, uh, that's a further question. (laughs) I'm quite open to considering it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because here on my shoulder, well, it's so damned embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, uh, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please. I, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. Can any of you relate to this interaction? What can we do if we look inside our hearts and we realize that part of us still wants to sin? If disaster really does take place at the intersection of opportunity and of desire, how can we begin to reshape our desires? My friend said something to me years ago that I haven't forgotten. We were at a coffee shop and and I was lamenting sin with him particularly just like this ongoing battle with sin that we have for the rest of our lives. And I'm like, when is this thing going to end? I felt like Paul in Romans 7 where I was like, man, I just, I keep doing the things I don't want to do and the things that I do want to do, I, I don't do. And like, man, just who, who will deliver me? And I told him, I, I said, I feel like I'm just living in daily repentance, just repenting all the time. And I said, I keep, I keep trying to turn away from, from sin and, and, you know, turn toward the better behavior, but I just, I just don't feel like I'm, you know, I'm getting the type of freedom that I'm longing for. And he said something to me that I never forgot. He said, number one, like, we should live in ongoing repentance. That's, That's part of the life of a Christian. But then he said, let me remind you, biblically, repentance is not turning away from sin and turning toward better behavior, primarily. Biblically, repentance is turning away from sin and turning toward Christ, he said, if, if, if our hope after we sin is, oh, no, I just sinned. What do I do? Oh, well, oh, I'll, I'll be better. I'll, I'll do better next time. Yes, that, yes, okay. If we start to put our hope in our own ability to be better, to do harder, uh, to, to, to do it better, to try harder, if that's where our hope lies, he says that will lead us to despair. It's, it's, remember, do you remember Paul in Romans 7 through 8? He says, the things that I don't want to do, I keep doing the things that I do want to do, I don't do. So he's looking at his own behavior. He's looking inside his own heart for hope. And where does it lead him? He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? When he's looking at his own behavior and his own morality for hope, where does it lead him? To despair. But then do you remember the end of the chapter, the very next verse, he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right into Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The turning point in that story with Paul was when he stopped looking at his own morality and and ability to maybe do better next time, and he starts looking at Christ, who is his perfect righteousness, who has purchased all of his forgiveness on the cross, and who promises to walk with him in this life of sanctification. Oh, and by the way, what will reshape our desires? As, as we asked right before this story, what will reshape our desires? It's not going to come from us just hoping, well, maybe 
if I just focus more on morality, then I'll be better and my desires will be reshaped. There's, that's not going to actually change our desires. What will change our desires is being in the presence of Christ, being in fellowship with him, being in fellowship with his people. I love uh, one verse from 2 Corinthians 3.18, which says that it is by beholding the glory of Christ that we are transformed. It's by beholding him that we are changed. That's how our desires will be reshaped, is when we turn away from sin and turn to Christ and pursue him. As uh, Pastor Brian's friend put it, he said, I found freedom when I stopped focusing primarily on pulling weeds and I started focusing primarily on growing plants. I started focusing on the life of Christ and walking with him in this life. So there we go. That's lie number three. The sin will make you happy. Let's briefly consider lie number four now, and that is that you will not surely die. Now, we've seen death all throughout this chapter, especially at the end. You saw it, I saw it, but I want to point out one thing from verses 16 through 17 that blew my mind from a commentary that I studied in the last couple of weeks. Notice verses 16 through 17. If you have your Bibles, the woman says, here's her allurement. She says, I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Does that sound attractive to you? <laughs> maybe not. At first, we think maybe, maybe she's just seducing him with good smells and an alluring atmosphere, and that is what she's doing. But according to one commentary, these are the same oils and spices that Egyptians would use to embalm dead bodies. This man thought that the woman was taking him into her house to find life when really she was bringing him in to prepare him for burial. And this is what sin and temptation always does. Temptation promises joy and life in sin, but it always leads to bitterness and death. So what then is our hope? What is our hope when we're going to be bombarded by lies? Literally, you have been bombarded with lies as during this sermon. And as soon as we walk out these doors, we're going to be bombarded with lies. So what in the world is our hope in the midst of this? I want to bring us back to the first two words of the entire passage of Proverbs 7. Do you see those two words? My son. This entire story is framed within the context of sonship. The father says, you are my child, and that will never change. He's not saying, if you resist sin and temptation, then you'll be my son and I'll love you. He's saying, because you are my son and I love you, I want to help you resist the sin that will destroy you. Here's how Pastor Jeff put it in our pastoral meeting, which, by the way, if you ever want to quote Pastor Jeff, it's like always a good idea. So here we go. Here's how we put it in our pastoral meeting. He said that the difference between works-based salvation and salvation by grace is where you turn when you sin. He says, when you've really screwed up, here we go, do you think, oh no, I hope my dad doesn't find out? Or do you say, oh no, I need to go find my dad because he can help me? One of the most uh, powerful illustrations of this concept comes from Amy Joseph's book uh, called Demystifying Decision Making, and we will close with this. I absolutely love this illustration excited to share it with you. It was so impactful to me the first time I read it. Amy Joseph, she tells a story about her son after he made a poor decision. Whatever temptation you are wrestling with in this season of your life, whatever struggle you are currently going through, let this story be an encouragement to you. She says, my nine-year-old son 
stood with his bicycle at the top of a steep hill in front of our house. His gaggle of neighborhood friends stood at the base of the hill where my husband and I were doing some gardening. Suddenly, my son cried out from the top of the hill, hey guys, watch this. My husband and I immediately looked up in alarm as those are dangerous words coming from a young boy. Much to our surprise, our son's next move was not to ride down the hill on the bike, but to send the bike down the hill without a rider, so he did. Our eyes moved back and forth between the bike, which was picking up speed, and the new-to-us car toward which it was headed, and sure enough, the bike slammed into the side of the car as we watched in shock and horror. My son, recognizing what he had done, and not even understanding himself why he had done it, began running down the hill. I fully expected him to run into his room in embarrassment, but then he did something we did not expect. He ran directly into my husband's arms paying my husband one of the greatest compliments of his life in a moment when fear and shame and consequences might have made him run from his father, he chose to run to his father instead. While, while he knew that his father was the one who could discipline him, he also knew that his father loved him and that the safest place he could be in that moment was in his father's arms. Proverbs 7 reminds us not only that we have a wise father who can help us make good decisions, but it also reminds us that we have a loving and forgiving father to turn to when we don't. And how is it that our heavenly father can be so freely forgiving and gracious after we sin? Well, it's somewhat ironic and perhaps not so ironic that in verses 23 and 27 of Proverbs 7, it says that this young man walked straight into the chambers of death, not knowing that it would cost him his life. 1,000 years after Solomon told this story, another young man walked into the chambers of death knowing full well that it would cost him his life. Only this man, Jesus, did not enter into the grave as a result of his sin, but in order to pay for sin. Then three days later, Jesus rose again from the grave forever, defeating sin and death and the devil. The ultimate reason why you and I can have hope is because this Savior, Jesus, he offers us freedom and life and grace through his blood. If you feel like you are drowning in sin and suffering and brokenness, Jesus wants to be a refuge for you. If you have not yet put your trust in Jesus, let today be the day. Let today be the day. Ask Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life. Ask him to bring you the freedom and life that you long for. And this is a prayer that Jesus is happy to answer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the hope of your word we thank you for the grace and life that is found in Jesus. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who is struggling, whether that's with temptation to sin or temptation to not trust you, Lord, or temptation even to despair. Lord, I pray that you would surround them with your presence, even by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that as they seek you through your word, through prayer, through fellowship with the body of Christ, that you would make your presence so felt and your love so felt in their lives that it would lead them, Lord, to even to, to peace and a greater trust in you and ultimately, Lord, to joy and life in your presence. So, Lord, I just pray blessing on those who are here today. Lord, I pray also that you would uh, 
See us in our brokenness, Lord. See us in our temptations to sin. And I pray that you would even begin to reshape our desires as we behold the beauty of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would transform our hearts. So Lord, we look to you for hope. And we commit this day and in the days ahead to you. In Christ's name, amen. Can't think of a, a better way to, uh, to end that service with that promise. Our sins, though they are many, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord. It's been wonderful to meet many of you already in my short time here. So most of the time I, I come and I worship here on Saturday nights and then I'll be at the Kesslinger campus on Sundays. But I have had the chance to meet some of you and already you have been extremely uh, welcoming and kind to me. I can just see Christ shining through you guys. It's also wonderful. During our worship, before I preached, I looked around a little bit and just saw you all worshiping, and it's just such, a, um, such an encouraging experience to be with the body of Christ and to, to be focused, um, to be united in our love for our Savior, Jesus Christ. So really a sweet blessing to be here this morning. Receive the benediction now as you go. May the love of God the Father in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.